Welcome to the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Here's Dr. Jana, an NYU professor of human sexuality, and Joe, a guy who's a fan of sex. Hey, Dr. Jana, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Joe and John are back. Episode number 58 of the Science Sex Podcast, mm-hmm. a very action-packed and interesting show. Oh, yeah? Why? Who do we have on the show? So we have a PhD student. By the name of Christina Pereira. Uh-huh. And she is, uh, it's kind of, I think, our first first sex worker on the show. So she's a sex worker out of Nevada and Las Vegas, but she's also doing some PhD research out there. And a lot on of it, sex work. On sex work. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, it was kind of something that was a nice little twist on what we do here. Because even though she is a sex nerd like your people, mm-hmm. uh, she is also <laughs> someone who's who's applying it literally. Like she, <laughs> she is walking the walk, she's not w- just talking the talk. Huh? Exactly. <laughs> so I figured it'd be a good little twist to do this week and, and talk to her out there in Las Vegas. She's worked in Blothels out there. So we can talk about sex work. We, one thing you've mentioned many a times on the show is Sesta Fosta. Yes. That whole government thing. Going down. I'm really excited to talk about sex work. Yeah, so because we haven't really, I mean, aside from a few pieces here and yeah. there that we've thrown around, we haven't actually had a guest on the on the show. Yeah, to talk about sex research yeah. on sex work. Yeah, and if you happen to live in or near Boston and would like to see me live, I am giving a talk on the 27th of March at the Good Vibrations store in Brookline on the topic of. Difficult emotions involved in non-monogamous relationships like jealousy, catching feelings, new relationship energy, and navigating all of that if you're open. Interesting. You know, you've mentioned that a couple times now mm-hmm. around me, catching feelings, mm-hmm. but you never told me what that means. Oh, you, you don't know what catching feelings is? No. I mean- It's just like catching a virus. Really? <laughs> Developing feelings for someone and usually used in the context where you didn't necessarily want to. Oh. So unwanted- Got emotional it. involvement with someone because maybe you were hooking up with, you started hooking up, you just wanted to keep it casual in the context of open relationships. Oh. Maybe you have an agreement with your long-term partner that you're only going to have casual sex with other people but not fall in love with others oh. and yet sometimes you fall in love with other people. You catch feelings. You catch feelings, now, exactly. Is that one of those cool terms that they use in the poly community that other people don't because I've never heard that before, catching feelings. What? No. Seriously? You've never you're said lying. it until the last few weeks. You've only started saying the catching feelings thing i'm telling you i think this is a new this is a new word no, i've i've used that you, you see it you hear it a lot in college students in the literature around casual sex mm-hmm. especially when they do these qualitative interviews with people oh, okay. kind of what's your experience blah 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 and people will talk about catching feelings or trying not to catch feelings or trying to prevent their partners from catching feelings for them and so on so yeah it comes from the obviously common experience of people falling for one another when there's sexual, some sort of sexual behavior involved, but when you didn't really want that to happen or the other person didn't reciprocate and so on. All right. And in the con- I'm going to start using that. I like that. I like that catching feelings thing. It does it, have a negative connotation, though. It, oh, it does? Ooh. Well, you're catching feelings like as if you're catching a cold. Oh, okay. And then you develop symptoms. Yeah. But infatuation, which is catching feelings, which is, which is falling in love. Yeah. We talk about symptoms of infatuation. Yeah. Just like we talk about symptoms of a disease because you are in an altered state of mind mm. when you are in that state and you do show some symptoms yeah. <laughs> that you are in that altered state of mind. So anyway, but that's what we're going to talk about. 27th of March, Brookline, Good Vibrations Store. And then if you happen to be an Emerson college student, 
I will be doing another talk on pleasure and consent the day after that on Thursday, the 28th of March at Emerson College. Cool. Let's get Christina on. Yeah, let's do it. But uh, I think you should introduce her. All right. Tell us about Christina. Yeah, Christina Pereira is a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, UNLV. She obtained her master's degree in clinical psychology in 2010 from University of Hartford. Christina is currently <laughs> conducting an ethnography of Nevada legal brothels. Do you know what ethnography is? I do not. What is that? <laughs> it's when you kind of go into a community and you observe and you may be a participant or not a participant, you, mm-hmm. but you're observing and kind of writing it down. And so taking this more holistic approach to what is happening in oh. a community of people, in this case, Nevada brothels. So like it's like being embedded. Kind of, yeah, like being embedded. And then usually you don't just write these like quantitative statistics type articles, but you often write a whole book about it that kind of captures the complexity and the richness. It's like a Hunter that. S. Thompson type thing, right? <laughs> well, but, right, then yeah, but a little more researchy. Okay. Yeah, a little more uh, structured. Got it. Her areas of interest are emotional labor and stigma in sex work. She also works at Track B Needle Exchange and Harm Reduction Center in Las Vegas. She does STI testing, counseling, and outreach. In addition to studying the topic of sex work, Christina is a 10-year veteran in the sex industry, currently doing phone and webcam work as well as BDSM in Las Vegas. Christina Pereira, welcome to the Science Sex Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you on the show. We have never had a guest who studies sex work, and there isn't that much research being done on sex work, is there? Or is is there? (laughs) Yes and no. A lot of what is out there, at least in the U.S., is on street sex work. Uh, It tends to be easier to get that sort of data. And so there's not as much on indoor sex work, indoor meaning, you know, what's done inside, whether someone's apartment or a brothel, which is what I study. Mm -hmm. And really not too much research, probably none at all that I can think of, comparing different performances. So like the girlfriend experience and the porn star experience. So that's something I'm doing that's unique. I, I want to get into all of that. <laughs> but but before we get into, I think, I think it would be a good place to start with um, how did you end up studying this? How did you, because you're, you know, we, we rarely get people who practice what they preach mm-hmm. in a way right. in, in the research world and uh, certainly not when it comes to something so potentially controversial, potentially right. illegal, potentially, you know, all these gray areas and stigmatized areas. And so uh, let, let's hear a little bit about you and your life and how you ended up where you ended up. Sure. So I was getting my master's in clinical psychology back in Connecticut, where I'm from, Mm-hmm. And I was working as a bartender and a waitress at the time. And I was, you know, just working super late at night and then going to class in the morning, exhausted. Obviously, we all know school is expensive. Mm-hmm. And one of my friends said to me, you know, why don't you try webcamming? You know, you probably make good money. You won't have to bartend anymore. And I was like, I mean, let's see, I was 22 at the time and ha- did not really know much about webcamming. And so I uh, was introduced to it, and then that that was it. Just like stopped waitressing, stopped bartending, was making really good money camming, and it got me through school. It got me through my master's. I'm still camming, although I, it's the one type of sex work that I'm I'm probably doing the least of now. Mm-hmm. But I did do it steady, um, on and off for ten years, mostly on for at least five years. That was the only type of sex work I was doing. It was the only real income I had, and it was it. It was plentiful, you know, it was, it, <laughs> it was um, a good income. It was going well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so I wanted to study sex work during my PhD. Um, I started a PhD in clinical psych and then was like, I want to be a researcher. I don't want to be a clinician. So I basically like jumped on a plane, 
dropped out of school in Connecticut, jumped on a plane, came to Vegas to um, get my PhD here in sociology. And Vegas, because Nevada is the only state in the U.S. where we have legal brothels. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted to study. Was there somebody in the Department of Sociology who studies sex work who you wanted to work with? Or were you like, I'm just going to find a way to study this, whether they want me or not? Well, first, I was a sex worker, right? So I was interested in stigma and our experiences and, and advocating for you know, our right as, as women to do this kind of work. And I'd always been fascinated by the brothels because when I was, I don't know, I guess I was like 18 or 19 when the show Cat House was on on HBO and it was about the bunny ranch. And I just remember mm. watching that and being like, who are these fabulous women like living in the middle of the desert that are selling sex and, and it's on TV and, and they don't care. You know, it's like they, they have no shame about it. And, mm. and why should they? And I just thought that was so novel and started reading about the brothels. And, and it wasn't until you know, quite a few years later that I bought the book is called State of Sex by Dr. Barb Brunt, who is now my dissertation chair. Mm. I read the the book back when I was still miserable in Connecticut <laughs> and in, you know, a psych program as a therapist. And I did love the work, but it just wasn't, you know, that's a whole other story. But <laughs> read her book and said, you know, I really want to work with this woman. And that's that is who I applied to and, and now work with. So then at what point did you jump in to the brothel game when you got to Vegas? As soon as you got out there? Yeah, pretty soon. But like I my plan wasn't ever to work in them. I had never been a prostitute. I had never had sex for money prior. I had done a little bit of stripping, a little bit of porn, but mostly just the camming. And that's all obviously very different types of sex work than than prostitutions. But I did find along my travels here that the best way and easiest way and, and I thought just overall the most effective way to get the data that I was looking for would be to work there and to be able to interview the women um, as a fellow worker. And also, like, how else am I going to get the data if I don't work there? Like, I didn't realize mm-hmm. that at first, but <laughs> after brothels kept saying no to me, just being a researcher and like, I was like, I'll pay rent. Like, can I live here oh, and so, interview so the women? You, so you went out there and you you contacted the brothels and you're like, can I come live here and just interview the women and collect data without working? Yeah, that's what I, that I was the initial couple, idea. And they, mm-hmm. they said no. And how like how naive I was, because now that I look back, of course, they said no. Like, who the hell wants a researcher poking around their business? <laughs> and, like right. not even adding to the income, not even, you know, but working there wasn't like it wasn't a possibility. It's not something I thought of, not only because I had never done it, but also I didn't think the department would be OK with it. You know, like it just wasn't. Right something. And it wasn't until I got to Dennis Hoff's brothels, um, who unfortunately recently passed away. Mm. Um, they were like, yes, you can do this. But he had said he wanted me to work there if I was going to do it and see what it was like. And if I did that, then I could go in and interview all the girls I wanted and, you know, basically just mm-hmm. have at it. And so that was how I ended did. up uh, working there. And this sounds like a movie, by the way. I know. How is it, <laughs> it, how, how is it I mean, not I a movie? I dissertation into a book. So you were doing all this research and you were like, go, you were, this is what I'm going to do on sex work. But you never thought in your a thousand years you would physically be doing it. No. Like I said, I, I was a sex worker in, in different capacities. Yeah. But like, you know, from home, cozy in my bed on cam, mm-hmm. like not with actual clients, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so it is different. But, you know, it sounds so crazy and weird to say, but I've heard other sex workers say it. Like I was ever since I was young, I was intrigued by strippers and and. I'd say prostitutes, but mostly brothel 
prostitutes, just the whole bordello and the whole mm. like the old West of mm. the history of it. And so part of me wanted to do it. I just didn't think I would get the chance, which sounds really weird, but I didn't think I'd get the chance to do it. Right. You don't exactly think of that being part of your PhD work, right? Yeah. If you're going to go study right. them, then then you're probably not going to be doing it while studying it sort yeah. of thing. And so exactly. I, 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 let's finish sort of the timeline. So is, is this your first year when you're going around and asking asking the brothels? And when it, you... Yeah, it was my second semester. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it was the end of my, towards the end of my first year. And then when did you start actually working and living there? It was the end of 2013. It was over a break because when you um, work in the brothels, you have to live there. So what I started doing was I'd move in for 10 to 14 days over winter break and then spring break and then even like a four-day weekend if I could get away. Right, right. And then go back to school. Yeah, and then just go back to school. I never lived there for more than two weeks just because of the the timing and the inconvenience and, you know, having to be in Vegas for school and also just getting stir crazy. So I would go for a couple weeks and then then just come back here and resume normal life. (laughs) Being just your regular PhD student. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Everybody knew what I was doing. I mean, you know, it got IRB approved, obviously. As soon as I started this project, I was completely out of the closet and there was no no hiding it from anybody, you know, and I didn't have to because obviously my professors approved it. You know, the the ethics committee approved it. So um, that was pretty fabulous. How did that happen? How did the ethics committee approve it? The professors? How how was the reaction? They were actually really excited. Like I have I have the best professors ever. And UNLV sociology is very for like you know, free speech and just freedom to do what one, it's just, it's a great place to be. And they said, you know, no one's quite studied it in this way. And of course, you know, Dr. Brents and I, my advisor talked about the downsides, the stigma, mm-hmm. the fact that some, um, at the time I wanted to go into academia and, and get on the tenure track. And I just super recently decided that's probably not Hmm. Not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, not gonna work. And with my big mouth, I don't. I mean, I'll probably. I don't know what university would retain me. <laughs> I mean, just being honest, like in the in 2018, like I don't think I have a shot. So, um, but you know, we did discuss that the ramifications. Um, and you know, it's a very sex work friendly department. That's why I'm there. That's why a mm-hmm. lot of people have come from around the U.S. to study sex work there. And as far as IRB. It really wasn't an issue. They just wanted to make sure, like with any um, project, that I'm not, you know, taking advantage of participants, not doing anything unethical. Right. And so they deemed, I, you know, that I wasn't, and uh, it got passed through pretty smoothly. And that's amazing. And then I started, and I I interviewed 53 women to date, and I am done collecting data, so that's that's all I will be getting. Um, okay. And it was really, it went really well, and it was a lot so, of fun. So you were there on and off for how long? Mm, about three years, but mostly, mostly on during the first year. So mm-hmm. over the last couple of years, I haven't worked all that much. Like I'll go in for a weekend or for an appointment, but mostly I was around a lot though, as a friend to the owner, we became friends and as just as a researcher. And oftentimes I'd go, like I'd fly up North to the bunny ranch, stay there for a weekend and, uh, and not work, just interview people and then come back down. Mm. So I, I really was only, I'd say, working there with any consistency over, you know, the first year, year and a half. Gotcha. What was the research question or research goals? What what did you go in there to study? Yeah, so at first I went in and had some informal research questions, but um, what I am doing is called ethnography. And so it's um, it's qualitative. It's sort of like what anthropologists do when they go in and study, um, 
you know, groups and people in other countries and, and immerse themselves in, into that group. So I went and lived and worked in the brothel and obviously immersed myself, you know, became, became a prostitute, took field notes, kept a journal every day, took photos and then interviewed women, of course, with their knowledge and their consent as I was there and as time went on. And my initial questions just had to do, they were vague. I was interested in pleasure. Are the women orgasming at work? Mm-hmm. Um, how much of it is authentic? Where's the line between authenticity and, and just work mm-hmm. and intimacy? Um, and it got a lot more structured with time. So it developed into me looking at the ways, the I call them performances. So like the girlfriend experience, the porn star experience, how those are gendered, raced, and classed, and how that ties into stigma of sex work. All right, so we should break down some of these performances, yes. right? Yeah, we should yes, break it all yes. down. Yeah. Uh, but actually, before we do that, I want to take a step back and just explain kind of the, the whole range of what sex work is. Because, as I said, we've never really had a researcher talk about sex work, and I think there's a lot of confusion around what that exactly implies. So let's just for a minute take a step back and define that big umbrella of sex work, what falls under that, and where where the brothels and this specific type of work that you ended up studying, where that falls under that, within, within sure. that categorization and, and uh, hierarchy in a way. Yeah, so sex work just means it's a broad umbrella term, anything that um, is sexual and, and is compensated. So there is what we call full-service sex work, so brothel work, prostitution, basically, you know, Full service is having sex with a client. Uh, but then there's also stripping. Mm-hmm. Stripping, erotic dancing, pornography, dom work, fetish. And so some sex work is legal and some sex work is illegal. So obviously it's legal to dance in a club or do porn. But prostitution is largely illegal in the U.S. other than certain counties in rural Nevada where I worked in the brothel. And it's not Vegas. People often think it's Vegas where mm-hmm. the prostitution is legal, right. but it's not. It's these rural counties around Vegas, right? Yeah, it's not Vegas. And a lot of people get arrested. You know, tourists, mm-hmm. these guys come here and they think that these escort agencies, you know, you'll see those photos all over the strip and passing out the cards and the advertisements. And that's not legal. It's only legal to have brothels in counties that have less than 700,000 people. Mm-hmm. And so that's basically every county in Nevada because it is pretty rural, right. except for except the counties that have Vegas and uh, Reno. Vegas and Reno. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. It's a desert. <laughs> yeah. It's a desert with not yeah, a lot of totally people. Yeah, totally in the middle of nowhere. Like just bordellos <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. How far are they from populated areas like Vegas and Reno? Is it a, is it a hike or how long does it take people to get there? So for the, we call it, we say the Southern and the Northern brothels. So the Southern ones, obviously Southern Nevada, um, to get to the closest brothel, I'd say the one I worked was probably the second closest. It's about 90 minutes, not more than that, maybe okay. 80 to 90 trek. minutes. So yeah, it's a bit of a drive and it's, it's completely through the desert. And then the um, Northern ones, it's like the Bunny Ranch are in Carson City. It's, it's in a more populated area. It's not as much the desert, but let's see, when I would fly into Reno airport, it was still about a 45 minute drive the bunny ranch are they trying real hard not to have lots of babies in carson city so they can keep the population under seven hundred thousand? <laughs> you know i i uh, Do they have really good contraception crazy, right because it started off at, at two hundred fifty thousand, and oh. then it went up to 400 and you know obviously they have to keep upping the number um mm. as the population goes up so yeah, the whole thing is so so silly anyways i mean they should just have them uh well i think they should have them everywhere but right. certainly in clark county 
because there's so much uh, prostitution anyways in Vegas, as we all know. Right. Hmm. Where is, and so obviously the full service work can happen in different locations. So you can have people, as you mentioned earlier, street-based prostitution, and you, you can also have these indoor versions, brothels. You know, we all know about the happy ending massages or we keep hearing right. about them, right? Um, and then there's more of the escort agency type work. Yeah, and also just, uh, and then there's what most people will say independent. So like independent escorting is just uh, what it sounds like. So a woman um, or man or trans person usually placing an ad online, although that's gotten a bit trickier with mm, a lot of the right. laws that have passed. But um, placing an ad online and uh, perhaps screening the client, maybe not, not everybody screens, and then just meeting them in a hotel or at their place, their in-call. Right. So, yeah, and, and those people we call independent escorting because they are not working through an agency um, or, you know, a pimp or a brothel. They're working uh, just for themselves. Uh, what's the legality of the escort agencies? Because it seems like they exist kind of sort of above the board to some extent. Yeah, they it's, it's tricky. And this is how people get arrested because they don't know the laws as well as, you know, like a, a prostitution researcher. <laughs> like who would, you know? The escort agencies, what they do there is they don't so they don't promise anything. It'll say on the cards usually like, oh, forty dollars for a dance with, you know, a half naked woman on it. And and she so she's aiming to to get more than forty dollars for a dance. But the way it works is they'll show up, you know, the escort will show up for whatever rate it says on the card. You know, it's something usually absurdly low and the guys are thinking wow i'm really gonna have sex for you know fifty dollars <laughs> um anyway she'll show up and, and now that's the fee just for her to show up at the door and technically escorting is legal because you're only selling you know time and company in right. exchange for money so there's there's nothing wrong with that right so as long as they don't promise sex or a blow job or you know they mm-hmm. it's more just like oh she'll she'll show up and rub your back and hang out with you and then it's <laughs> Whatever happens between two consenting adults is uh, it's between them. That's not our problem. That's not our business. That's right. what the agencies say. So she'll show up and then she'll say, oh, thanks. That was 50 bucks for me to show up. Oh, oh, you want more than that? Well, that's going to be 300. Right. And they'll keep upselling and upselling. And obviously at that point, what she's doing is verbally saying, I will give you a blowjob for this amount. That's mm. illegal. That's prostitution. And the escort agencies will say, that's not our fault. We didn't, we didn't know do that. that. Right, 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 right. So that's how they... Of course yeah, not. And it's, it's often a bait and switch. It's not... I will tell guys, don't bother with the agencies. I know not everybody wants to drive to a brothel and spend the money and the time because they are more expensive than independent girls. But don't do the agencies because it's a ripoff. So either go to independence or go to a brothel. And know that going to an independent is illegal. Illegal, but, yeah, right. I, mean, <laughs> I think it should be decriminalized. I think I don't think it should be illegal. But right. I would say go through like a, a vetted escort and not an agency because agencies, there's a few legit ones in Vegas, but not many. All right. So tell us about the brothels. Tell us about what you found about in in answers to your to your questions that you had around what these girls are doing and is it all women Crystal? it is all women um there's been a few attempts at having male prostitutes in brothels but like honestly nobody nobody pays them nobody pays the men so uh it's only <laughs> we'll do it for free and, we don't need any money so. yeah <laughs> and there's every once in a while there's um a trans worker but um only you know i can count on probably one hand so you asked these workers about the level of what the and you did mention something about the girlfriend experience the porn experience what what are those for for the, for the layman out there who do not understand some of these terms 
Yeah, and I should preface that those things, uh, you know, it's, it's all so confusing. Those things mean different things inside the brothel and in independent work, but I'll just go through what they mean for the purposes of the brothel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's characterized by kissing, cuddling, time spent with the client. Um, it's more than, the whole thing is that it's more than just sex. And that's, I'm um, like basically quoting uh, the, the girls, right? They'll say, oh, I provide more than just sex. I'll get into my findings after, but I found that it really was a way, I think, to distance themselves from the stigma of, of paid sex. And so, you know, a way to sort of say, well, this is more than that. Mm-hmm. And it is more than that. It's outdates. So, you know, it's legal in northern Nevada for the clients to take the girls out to dinner, out to a show, mm-hmm. to Lake Tahoe, all of that. And so oh. the, that's what it's characterized by is that time spent. They might do an overnight. They might stay there for for two, three, four days with the girl. So it's a lot more than just a quickie. They'll stay for two, three days at the brothel? Oh, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. so that's more of a thing done at, in the northern Nevada brothels because outdates, for whatever reason, are not legal in southern Nevada. So the, the laws of what the brothels can do vary by county. Mm-hmm. For example, up north, like at the Bunny Ranch, I mean, guys have gone there and, and spent a million dollars. Like, there was this one guy once I heard he stayed there for, I think he stayed for like at least two weeks and he, he sessioned with three different girls like the whole time and he spent I think like 1.2 million so a lot of these guys are guys with a lot of money that want to do it the legal way because they can't you know they're famous or they're whatever for whatever reason Mm -hmm. they can't get caught they can't get arrested well famously Um, you had the Lamar Odom situation right that was at the Bunny Ranch was it not uh, that was at Love Ranch, Low which Love unfortunately Ranch. closed. Um, okay. It's the only one that closed after Dennis's death because he wasn't on the license. But yeah, the Lamar, the Lamar thing was like, that went wrong. I mean, that was an example of somebody that wanted to be anonymous. Things just went wrong, right? Yeah. So Because he, he brought substances into the brothel um, and OD'd. But um, yeah, so the girlfriend experience, though, you know, we think usually of a brothel as men just going in you know, paying for an hour or a quickie or whatever and leaving. Right. But the majority of the money made and the, the best clientele, of course, is the ones that want to go and spend days with you and do overnights. And there are some girls up at the money ranch that are making ridiculous amounts of money and having guys, you know, sleep over with them and providing this whole, you know, texting between sessions, mm. being like like a girlfriend, you know, right. it's the girlfriend experience. Is there going rate for that? ballpark for the girlfriend experience just in in that brothel i guess well so they're independent contractors and they set their own rates um but and it also depends Mm -hmm. on the brothel but i'll at bunny ranch let's say a guy wanted just an hour of girlfriend experience which would mean kissing and cuddling in the party uh and sometimes also giving the the girl oral sex not everybody um allows uh the guy to give oral sex but that is one thing that's you know usually included in the girlfriend experience he just wants an hour. He could probably get it for a thousand, but there are definitely girls that won't go below like two thousand for a girlfriend experience. For one hour, like two, upwards of two thousand dollars. Definitely at least two thousand if you're at the Bunny Ranch. But the, keep in mind that's at the Bunny Ranch. That's yeah. one of the more expensive. But me, like, so girlfriend experience for me included kissing, which was something I was fanatical about. Like I would not do under a certain amount. And so if somebody came to me and said, and I didn't work at the Bunny Ranch. I did I did a couple appointments there, but I was mostly at one of the, like I'll say, at the cheaper brothels that Dennis owned, you know, where you weren't as likely to get two or 3,000 for an hour, but I would not kiss for under 1,000. Like I wouldn't even consider it. Mm. And usually I wouldn't even have sex for under probably 800. And remember, we're only getting 50% of that. It's 50-50, gotcha. 
But at a bigger brothel like the Bunny Ranch that was on TV and had all that exposure, they can definitely get away with charging a few grand an hour for, especially if it's the girlfriend experience, since that's the, the most pricey service. A girl that's just providing, let's say, like the porn star experience, which is, does not have all that kissing and, and cuddling yeah, and all that. Tell us about the porn star experience. Yeah, that one tends to not be offered as frequently because here's the thing. The, the GFE, that's the girlfriend experience, that's where the money is at. That's what clients mm. want the most of. And so a lot of girls are either offering that or specializing in that. There's not a lot that will say, hey, I just specialize in PSE, porn star experience. But there are some, and that's characterized by the type of sex we see in porn. So deep throating, dirty talking, multiple positions, you know, just like a high energy experience jack hammer fucking yeah yeah like and there's definitely not going to be any she's not she's probably not going to kiss um she's definitely not going to cuddle you after and ask about your job or (laughs) or whatever you know it's more probably what people think is offered in a brothel um Mm. but it's definitely not as sought after and um you know some guys do go in there of course wanting quickies but um that's not where the money's at so those are the two top of i guess top of the line of the menu those those <laughs> are two and, it, and do you have does it work down is like is there's like a dollar menu like mcdonald's when you go in do they have something that's <laughs> like a little cheaper or, or do they pretty much yeah. do workers like stick to the top end no i mean and again it really it depends on the girl too because certainly there's girls at bunny ranch that are are doing you know an hour for 500 and there's nothing wrong with that mm-hmm. like whatever that's still 250 for an hour that's still far more than most of america makes yeah but so you know what yeah, i mean I so it depends on the girl mm-hmm. um it maybe even depends on the day what kind of mood is she in did she just make 40 grand over the weekend you know um and the brothel like i said the bunny ranch has certain like sherry's ranch is another one not owned by dennis just to give it a you know, an example of an, another brothel where, yeah, those girls are, are taking home 30, 40, 50,000 a month, um, you know, the top mm-hmm. earners. So mm-hmm. Joe, Joe is, um, is having his mind blown my, right now. Oh, so what I was, yeah, this like, is what his I was mind is literally yeah. like, what, it, what the heck? And I'm less, my mind is far less blown because I, you're know, a woman and you know, well, I also <laughs> have a lot of friends who are independent escorts here in the city and right. You know, they are making, a lot of money, right? They yeah. are making, you know, similar similar uh, oh, yeah. amounts women of money. Oh yeah, women in Manhattan yeah. are making good money for sure. Yeah, so but they also have to probably do more work, right? Because basically no, no I mean no. in terms of the yeah. fact No, no, I don't I don't mean work literally. I mean the fact that the, the guys are just coming one after another. Well, that's what I there. like about the brothel is yeah. you, we do advertise, like we do have our own message boards and stuff like that, but like a girl so I have I've done both. Like I have also done independent escorting, and I'll tell you what I didn't like it, and it wasn't for me because I had to do all my own advertising. I had to do screening, mm. uh, right? I wanted to make sure that guy wasn't a cop or a psychopath. Like I'm not just going to see anybody. Mm. So when you're in the brothel, you don't have to worry about those things. Right. You're legal, first of all. You don't care if a cop comes in. Right. The brothel you does know, the screening. Also, I had and to there's... go drive to hotels, mm. drive to their alcohol. You know, I didn't want guys coming to my home and knowing where I lived. So in the brothel, they just come to you. And, like, you're already there. The brothels, the Bunny Ranch is already advertised. Everybody knows, you know, of them. Um, so in some ways, I think it's actually a lot easier, a lot nicer. Safer um, in, in some of these so ways. Definitely right? safer. I mean, independent escorts, I think ha- they have more freedom. They don't mm. have to live in a brothel to make right. their money. They don't have to give 50%. Although when your earning potential is so high in a brothel, like for me, I didn't mind giving the 50% because I was charging much more than I could get away with charging independently in Vegas, especially Vegas that's mm. oversaturated with escorts. Right, right, right. It's so fascinating. Yeah, I think different people will will find these different types of sex work 
differently appealing, right? So mm. you might some yeah some people saying no, I really love the independence of the independent escorting versus this, and then some people are like, no, I really like the brothel kind of work. It depends yeah. too on like like me, I'm a PhD student, like I don't want to get arrested for it. You yes. know what I mean? Like it's just um, the whole thing I found to be very stressful. Whereas I have friends that have tried the brothel. And they were like, oh, no, this doesn't work for me. I'm not giving up 50 percent. I'm not going to live here. I miss my dog or my husband or whatever. <laughs> right. So of the 50 plus women that you talked to, did they all love what they did? You know, it depends how you define love what they did. But I can tell you of some of the data that I have of the 53, I think it was seven that had some kind of pimp involvement. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean they had a pimp. What that meant, pimp involvement, was actually one of them was a pimp herself, which really shocked me. Like, I didn't expect to find that. I was like, I'm sorry, what? Like, you don't have a pimp. You are the pimp. Okay. Mm. Um, and then there was about, I think, five that had former pimps um, and one that had a current pimp. So some of the girls in the brothels do have pimps on the outside that are taking all their money and um, this and that. But it's so, so rare. And in my sample, there was only one. So I would say women in that sort of situation, they're not fully there by their own accord. I would say I would not count them in the ones that are, you know, completely loving it. Most people are there because it's good money. But what surprised me was how many women are having legitimate orgasms with clients. I came in thinking it would be like just a few of, let's say, 53. I would say at least 50% of that, if not more, say that they orgasm with clients on a regular basis. And that blew my mind. That was much mm -hmm. higher than I thought. 50%? Yeah, at least. And the thing is, though, those women also tend to be of a certain type. Like, they're most, the majority of women that are really enjoying the sex and authentically having orgasms are older. We're talking 35, 40 plus. Almost all of them are above 40. And so that's like a really striking find right there. And they also tend to be offering the girlfriend experience. So the girlfriend experience tends to be very white, middle to upper class, women that have more social capital. They tend to have um, college degrees. They never, they didn't have pimps. Um, it's it's like a certain profile, right, of, of a person offering the GFE. They just tend to be overall in a better position in life and do tend to be older. Whereas um, a lot of the women that are in their 20s are really just doing it for the money. They're less concerned with the things like the older women talk about it being a healing experience, part of their sexual journey. You don't really hear that talk among the women in their 20s. They're there to make a fast buck. They're not really into the clients. A lot of times they're just faking it. And, and again, this isn't true of everybody. It's just overall patterns mm -hmm. that I found. Yeah. So if I always tell guys, listen, if I were a guy and I was going to a brothel, I sure as hell would get a woman 40 or over because <laughs> I know she's more likely to enjoy it. And like they just like, man, those women over 40 are killing it. For the last several years, every house owned by Dennis Hoff has they do a top earner. So like, you know, earner of the year. Mm -hmm. And with the exception of the last couple of years, it's been Alice Little. She's um, in her 20s. Other than her, it was all women in their 40s and up, the top earners, like all of them, <laughs> and some of them even in their 50s. And so, like, I tell the guys, I'm like, go with one of the older women. They they know what they're doing, I guess, and they're into it, you know? <laughs> Interesting. So the demographics were, were definitely uh, different among, you know, so per service, and that's what I wanted to look at was how, who's offering what and how are different things portrayed and stigmatized. Mm -hmm. And what did you find around that? So it's kind of interesting. The more sexual and experiences so like the porn star experience you know for example i think is definitely characterized more by like you know like i said dirty hot sex dirty talk toys all that 
and there's more stigma around it. Um, it's funny because these two groups, like there's within groups stigma too. Like the girls that offer the GFE and make a lot of money, they tend to elevate themselves. Like, oh, well, I'm more than just a prostitute. Mm. You know, oh, I'm not like those girls. Mm. Oh, she's just so easy for her. She's just having sex. She's just a whole. Like they will say disparaging things about, you know, mm. and then the the other girls of them will say, oh, well, she gives everything away here. She, I can't believe she kisses. I would never kiss <laughs> in a brothel. That's reserved for my husband. You know, so you'll mm-hmm. hear this, you know, putting down of other women that um, offer services different from them. So there is, I, I was curious about the amount of sort of t- to what extent there would be kind of more of this competition or mean or, girling. Yeah, mean girling <laughs> yeah. versus kind of sisterhood and and a feeling of community and uh, network. What, what, what did you see more of? Well, in the brothel that I worked, so I worked at Alien Cat House, which at the time was only licensed for five girls. So I mm. loved it. It was small. We were definitely a family. There was a great sense of like solidarity and sisterhood. And it was just like, I'd never really had that. Most of my friends are guys. And so that was actually really nice for me to find that in like this community Mm -hmm. of women at the bigger houses that, you know, also tend to pull in more money. um, Bunny Ranch is licensed, I think, for 25 girls. Same with Sherry's Mm -hmm. outside of Vegas. There is also that family feel, but there's cliques. I mean, there's a lot more girls. And so there are people better in competition and catty and fighting. But, you know, I'll say it's not nearly as bad as, as I think people think it is. I expected that it was going to be totally mean girls and that I would be made miserable. And uh, it's really not like that, like overwhelming. I've, I mean, I made friends that I'll have my whole life in the brothels. So it's it's actually pretty good in in that way. I like to make the joke. It's like, you know, us weekly stars are just like us. You know, sex workers, they're just like us. Well, if you are. go to any office, <laughs> then you'll have the same kind of environment where yeah. there's multiple women, you know, either, you know, backbiting or saying negative things behind the back or positive. You have both. It's true. I mean, in a lot of ways, it is it is just like other workplaces, except for the fact that, like, we're wearing lingerie instead of, <laughs> you know, business suits. suits. And, uh, like, <laughs> but it is interesting because you do you live there and you work there. And so it becomes like your home, at least temporarily. Like we even the doors are locked, you know, like. Guys can't just walk in. They have to ring the doorbell. Like, it really becomes your temporary home home for a bit. Mm. How about the stigma? You talked about stigma within the the brothel between the uh, girls. How about the stigma experienced by these women from the outside, their families, their friends? Yeah, it's horrifying. I mean, that's the one thing. And I'm I'm really lucky. And I'm yeah, I hate I'm not I hate talking about privilege, privilege is not whatever. Like, I'm just not that's not me. But I will say this is a situation where. I see that I have a lot of privilege because I'm guarded by being a student, right? So yes, I'm a prostitute or not anymore. I'm, um, I'm retired, I guess. Now I'm just a dominatrix, but whatever, you know, I'm a sex worker, but I'm also a PhD student. So there's that protective like, oh, okay, you're just doing it to study it. There, you know, I don't have the same stigma that other people have to deal with of, let's say, being career sex workers or, you know, they look at me and say, oh, you have a path out, um, which is frustrating because I don't think there should be a stigma period, you know, but a lot of these women are not out of the closet. They hide their faces on the website. They might blur them out. You know, you have all types. You have people that are in a lot of married and in relationship women. That was one thing I found as well. That surprised me. I assume most of the women would be single. Many of what them. What percentage many, of many, the 53 of were relationshiped? Well over 50%. A lot of them were, you know, and of course they're married. They're, 30s, 40s, people at that age often do have kids or are married mm. or partnered or divorced. And um, 
So there were people that it was totally just like for me, you know, married, have a life. Everybody knows about it. There's no shame in it. And then there's people where nobody knows they're there at all. And if they're, you know, family and friends or people at their other jobs, some have other, you know, professions, they would just their lives would be over if they found out because mm. there's this, still this stigma. This prostitution is a dirty thing. Oh, you're selling your body for money. You must be desperate. You know, who would do such a thing? But like I said, I know girls at the Bunny Ranch taking home 50 grand clean each month. You know, they're anything. They're not desperate. Yeah, they're very smart businesswomen. <laughs> there are girls, of course, that have drug issues and have, a, you know, and I will say that th they don't tend to last in a brothel. That's another advantage of being independent is like you can do whatever you want in your life. You can show up high to sessions. It's not any, you know. You're your own boss. If you're in a brothel, there's certain standards you'd have to adhere to. And if you're caught doing hard drugs or anything like that, you're thrown out. Uh, that was actually one of my questions. What is the, you know, in professional sports, like a football player, you know, three to five years, baseball players, five, what is the shelf life for a career as a sex worker? And, and, and maybe I guess the brothel is probably the best uh, question for you. The brothels are a great place for a sex worker because I, it's like there's no cap on age. Again, I went in thinking, you know, most were probably in their 20s, 30s, single you know, I was projecting maybe because I was in my 20s at the time and uh, single at the time. And to be honest, if any of my clients are hearing, they'll hate to he hear this. But I didn't enjoy the sex. I was always faking it. You know, you so were? I probably was just projecting what mm -hmm. I thought I'd find. But it was a wide it was a wide variety of, of women, all walks of life. And as far as the shelf life, there is high turnover. There's very high turnover in the brothels. A lot of girls come in usually in their 20s and they they think they can hack it or they and they after a couple of days. It's just not for them or it's not as busy as they thought or whatever and they'll leave. But, you know, I've seen successful women all the way. Air Force Amy is one of the top earners and I don't remember how old she is, but I, I'm quite sure she's in her 50s and not even on the, the lower end of that. She'd probably hate me for <laughs> saying this on the air. But, um, you know, you can just go to the, the website and even Google around and you'll see, oh, OK, you can be in your 50s and make. And the thing is, a lot of the women retire from the brothels. These women that are career sex workers that have worked from, let's say, the age of 33 to, you know, 45. There are women that have worked there for more than 10 years and have made millions of dollars. And then they can retire, you know, at 50 or 55. They don't have to work the rest of their life. That's awesome. But again, that's, you, you... I, that's on the rare side of sex work. It, it really is. I mean, most people in sex work are not making that much money, of course. You have the high-end escorts. Women in the brothels, porn, I mean, porn doesn't really pay anymore. That was more, you know, used to pay a lot in the 90s. Um, so, again, this, this is not the, I don't want your listeners to think that this is like the norm, that all sex workers are rich, because they're not. But this is some of what you'll see in the brothel. There is a range, yeah. Although, I don't know, based on based on Joe's faces, it looks like you're changing his mind about his career. And he's going <laughs> to, I don't know, maybe start thinking about... Uh, well, didn't you hear what she said earlier? The guys do it for free, so you have you you have a female partner, though. Oh, so you want and me? She's to still well within the range. Sure, you want me to get my female partner to go work. At the I don't range? know if you, you, if you throw there out you some of these up. numbers. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you suggest, <laughs> give yeah, if you give her these numbers, she That's might uh, have the yeah. same reactions as you do. I don't no, think no, so. yeah, you don't think so. Yeah. Okay, all right, Just, you know, putting it out there. I, I never worked at the Bunny Ranch, and uh, my plan was in the next six months or so to probably move up there and, and work there. And now I'm not, I'm not going to. And I just feel like, how stupid am I? Like I missed the boat on, you know, like 40, 50 grand a month. Um, I might change my mind. Well, you're still young. <laughs> like you said, maybe when you're in your fifties, you can go back in and say, Hey, listen, let me make a few extra coin up here. Right. Well, I, you know what? And I might be able to, um, I, I mean, yeah, there's really no, 
like I said, it's not what people think. Like when I walked in and started interviewing people, I was like, oh, this is not at all. This turned everything on its head. You know, uh, a lot of what one would expect in a brothel. That's not how it was. So, yeah, if I'm, you know, 50 and I need some extra cash, I guess I'll just go to the Bunny Ranch. And you sound like you were genuinely surprised by a lot of the data you got from this. Yeah, because like I said, I was projecting. And like to me, I went in thinking like I will never have an orgasm with a client. This shit is all fake. Like, you know, um, and I just expected that everybody else was the same. This is a performance. This isn't real. I'm not actually into you. I don't actually want to be kissing you. And like I don't want to sound like I love men. Like I am I am heterosexual. Actually, I'm bisexual. But you know what I mean? Like I'm not one of these women that's like hates men. So it's. I have a healthy uh, view, I think, of sexuality in males. But for me, it's when I'm paid, something shuts off. I'm no longer aroused. It's work. And I just, I expected everybody was the same. And mostly they're not. <laughs> that really surprised me. <laughs> have you ever had an orgasm while having sex with a client? You know, what's funny. I was just thinking about that yesterday. I was like, have I? And I don't, <laughs> no, I haven't. In the last year, I have, I think once or twice from oral with a client. But and even that was surprising. But like, oh, like I said, if there's any of my clients listen to this, like, I wish I hadn't wasted my money on her. <laughs> but while I do enjoy my clients and I like to spend time in company with them, you know, overwhelmingly, they've been really great guys. And I I do like them and enjoy them. I'm not into the sex, although in my personal life, I can't get enough of it. And I it's very easy for me to orgasm. And I love having sex. And so like, it's really weird. It's not even a physical thing. It's like mentally something in my brain just shuts off when I'm being paid, I go into work mode, and I can't just enjoy it the way, obviously, a lot of other women are able to do as I found out, you know, through <laughs> interviewing them. That's fascinating. Yeah, Talk to us a little bit about uh, sexually transmitted infections and condoms and that sort of stuff, because I think one of the big fears around sex work that people have is it's a cesspool of disease and so on. Yeah, which is like, you know, there's a lot of data that's shown that people in the general population actually have more STIs uh, and rates of STIs than indoor sex workers um, with with really? the the STIs and whatnot. um you know, research has shown that that tends to be more prevalent in street workers. So, you know, women that are working outside, outdoors, um, marginalized, not obviously not charging a lot. But among workers that are in brothels and, and working from home, our sexual health is is our income, right? So if you catch something and you have to be on antibiotics for two, three weeks, you're losing money. And so generally, um, sex workers are a very safe group, but particularly in the brothels, testing is mandated uh, as is condom use. And so if you see a worker in the brothel, you know that she has a clean bill of health and that she's being tested every single week. Every week? So it's every single week, wow. yeah. Once a month, there's um, full panel, blood, HIV, everything. That's once a month. And then once a week is gonorrhea, chlamydia, all that. And so every mm. single week um, and every single month for, for blood work. And then condoms are mandated. So, I mean, it really doesn't get any safer than a brothel. <laughs> and actually, since they've been legalized, since I think it was 1977, there has not been a single case of HIV transmission in the brothels, not one. So that's one thing people really shouldn't worry about. That's good to know. Yeah, because I think yeah. that's a frequent, frequent concern. So this is an interesting time, I think, for sex work. You know, on one hand, you have these completely legal brothels where all of this is, as you were saying, mandated condoms and SDI testing and no hard drugs. And it's this very regulated kind of environment. And at the same time, sex work generally is illegal or especially full contact sex work. And then 
these new laws that have been happening recently with SESTA-FOSTA that we've talked a little bit about on the podcast. Also, a lot of this sexual censorship that is happening more and more to the internet just in general. Tumblr, just this past Tumblr, month. Tumblr, yeah. right, got, yes. t- is taken down or just got all its sexual contact taken down. But it's also bigger than that. Facebook and Instagram are policing sexual language now, so explicit or sexually suggestive uh, language, not images are being uh, policed and taken down. What's going on? And how is this affecting sex work? Well, I think, unfortunately, we see these quote-unquote anti-trafficking groups, you know, get, get more power. And, you know, and I say that because they, organizations, and it's funny, I almost called it a company. Companies like Polaris Project. It's not a company, but it might as well be. Um, they get millions of dollars per year, and they don't actually have tangible resources for who they say are trafficking victims. And I'm not saying trafficking doesn't exist out there, but there's this real conflation in the U.S. of sex work and trafficking and and wanting it to be the same thing for political purposes. And, uh, And it's obviously not. Like, I'm not a trafficked victim. I am a consensual adult sex worker, even when I'm outside of the brothel. And so these laws target those that work outside the brothel. And I think that there will be ramifications in the future, too, you know, even for um, legal sex work, such as the brothels, it, it's it's a trickle down effect. But right now, who it's mostly targeting is uh, women that, or workers rather, that were advertising on the internet. I was one of them, and even just as a dominatrix, I rely on the internet for my business, and so I saw my business and my my income from home take take a hit, and um, plenty of ours did. And you know, I've heard instances where people were even pushed to either street work or like here in Vegas walking the casinos and not being able to screen and be safe about it like they were in the past when they they had access to some of these uh, websites and, and even screening tools online that are now, they're no longer there because of FOSTA. Yes, for, for listeners who might not be aware of what the SESTA-FOSTA laws are, they got passed, when was it, in May or so? Yeah, I think it was April. Yeah. April, or, April of uh, yeah. 2018 with bipartisan support. So this was not a Republican issue or Democratic issue. Everybody was on board and Trump signed it into law and they were meant to effectively make websites liable for any sex trafficking that may happen on their sites, not by them, but by any of their users. And they were they were advertised as meant to fight sex trafficking, which is getting people to be involved in the sex work trade industry against their will, against their consent. But as you as you mentioned, they effectively hit everybody, including consensual sex workers, whether full contact or otherwise. Yeah, you know, Backpage shut down and, and that really did hit um, the mar- most marginalized members of the, of the community because Backpage was uh, either free or very inexpensive to post on. You know, I mean, if you look at like Eros is still around and that is a very expensive site for escorts to post on. I mean, you need at least $100 to have a decent ad on Eros. On Backpage, you could have a great ad for just a few dollars. Mm. And so sites like that, FOSTA pushed out and, and made them, you know, basically, yeah, Backpage would have been liable if somebody were being trafficked on the site. You know, websites can't can't afford that kind of risk. And so they shut down. Mm. And And like I said, unfortunately, a lot of the ones that shut down were the more inexpensive sites. And so now it's it's mm. taking people that are already poor and marginalized and stigmatized and just pushing them further underground. And the same thing with sex trafficking victims. At least we had a paper trail of people that 
were potentially being trafficked. Now they're just going to go on the dark web. You know, it's not like the sex traffickers are just going to pack up and go home. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, oh, we're done. You know, it's it's all over. Party's over. Yeah, we're going to start working at McDonald's now. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm just going to stop. <laughs> yeah, I'll stop trafficking humans. Like, no, they, they're going to find other means. Just like we as sex workers have found other ways to thrive. The problem is not not all of us have. But um, like for me, I'm just like, oh, I could I could do camming. I could do phone sex. I could do dom work fetish. But you can't advertise it. That's mm. the only problem now, basically. Yeah. I, the, the good thing is that there's a lot of dom and fetish directories still around. And then, you know, a lot of us are just Twitter, social media. We're just making do with what we have. But the thing is, if you think about poorer workers, they might not have a computer or Internet or, you know, access to Twitter. So it's difficult. Many of these laws, as you said, are hitting the the most vulnerable populations already. Always. Yeah, yep. and w- yeah, whereas the more more privileged are going to find a way, one way yeah. or another. Right now, the probably the greatest pushback I get whenever I talk about sex work and trying to argue that you know sex work is work and that people have the right to choose whatever job they want to do, and that uh, there are plenty of people out there choosing to do this work out of their own accord and not really being forced into it, people push back on it because it's really hard to accept or understand or acknowledge that anybody could be choosing this or that if you're choosing it, that means you you are still pressured into it, even if it's not direct forcing the sex trafficking idea that we have, that you have this pimp or you have the sex trafficker who's forcing you to do it. You're kind of coerced into it by your your cir- life circumstances or feeling like you don't have other options or something like that. How do you answer this? Because I'm, I'm sure you hear this all the time. Yeah, I do. And I just like I present to them hard data of like, like myself. I say to them, look, I'm not desperate. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm well-educated. I have a master's. Uh, I don't really fit into any of those stereotype categories. And I, I, some days I love sex work. Some days I hate it. It also depends on the type of work. I don't really like escorting, but I love fetish, you know? So I just say to them, look, I, I'm a sex worker. I choose it. No one's forcing me. And, um, there's thousands, there's millions of people like me. It's just simply not true. And it's, there's also the silly notion too, that we need to enjoy our jobs for it to be. So, you know, not everyone likes their job. Just because someone hates their job doesn't mean they're being forced or coerced into it. You know, plenty of sex workers, like I, I hate webcamming. Um, it, it's <laughs> something that makes me pretty furious and miserable. And so I don't really do it anymore. Um, but I still will do it from time to time because it's a job I have and it's good money. And so I just, right. I challenge people with that. Like, well, do you love your job every day? And most people will say no. <laughs> and then I said, well, do you, does that mean you have a pimp or who, who's forcing you to do your job? <laughs> it's just this silly notion. It's just, it's just like work, like anything else, you know, even it's like when I used to strip, I'd, I'd get ready, I'd go to work, I'd have, I'd change there into my outfit, I'd work for the six, seven hour shift, and then I'd go home to my life. And it's work. That's all it is for many people, myself included. Yeah, it's, it's funny that people have this different standard for sex work that you have to absolutely love it and every single moment of your day in order for that to be a legitimate, whatever, authentic kind of thing, whereas people hate their jobs, non-sex mm-hmm. work related mm-hmm. jobs all the time. Like, do those McDonald's workers <laughs> really love, <laughs> you wake up every day saying, oh my God, I can't wait to go <laughs> and, you know, serve some yeah, burgers. Right. And, and even people who are paid a lot more, you know, there are plenty of people in investment banking or, I don't know, finance or whatever who 
don't particularly love their jobs. Yeah. They hate their jobs, but yeah, they love like the, the big money that they get paid, right? Exactly. And that's the thing. It's the money. Like, I know that McDonald's worker is probably not thrilled about going to their job. And guess what? They're they're also making, you know, minimum wage, or, which I don't even know minimum wage is these days. I'm kind of out of touch, right? Um, and <laughs> It's and that's less than I'm, what you're making you know, at the range. I'm escorting, yeah. making four, five, six hundred an hour. So it's like, I might not like, let's just say escorting is an example. That's the type of sex work that I don't like. But I was still making at least 500 an hour doing it. And so, like, you know what? I loved that. So so the thing is, most people don't like their job, and they're not making anywhere close to that. So I don't know why people pick on sex workers. I think it's because they it's stereotypes. And a lot of people can't imagine doing it themselves, and it makes them uncomfortable. And so they want to project that, on, you know, onto other mm. people like, oh, I can't imagine doing this. So I can't believe that you would do it. Right. You know, right. and as you were saying, so that's one kind of side of the argument that, well, you don't you know, not everybody loves their job uh, and you don't have to love your job in order for that to be a legitimate job right. and for you to be allowed to have that as a job or if they have chosen it as a job. But then on the other hand, there are people who do love it, who, as you're saying, they experience pleasure out of it. They enjoy their experiences. They and they sound like they do love their jobs. I mean, I certainly have some of my friends who are independent escorts here in the city who absolutely love what they do. Right. Yeah. And I, and as an independent dom, I love what I do. And like, I charge 400 an hour as a dom and I work independently and I don't have to give anyone that money and I have so much fun and I meet the coolest people and like, it's, (laughs) it's a blast. You know, I basically get to like dress up. Like I feel like a superhero (laughs) when I work as a dominatrix, you know, like I'm in this crazy clothes doing crazy things and get, and you know, making really good money. And so when people look at me and think that I'm in duress or that, Oh, poor you, you know, you get paid 400 an hour to wear latex and whip people. Oh, that's such a hard life. Like, what are you talking about? It's a great life. Like what? Like most people would kill for those opportunities. I think maybe I'm just a weirdo. I don't know, but it's, it's good money to have a good time, you know? And, and again, like not, I love that, but I don't like escorting. And so even within sex work, people need to realize that it's, it's not a homogenous group. There's different. You can be a sex worker and be doing legal work or illegal work. You can love it. You can hate it. You might be doing two different sex work jobs. Uh, like I have at different points and love one and hate the other. Right. What is your partner? You you said you had a husband. Uh, can can you just tell us a little bit about that experience when you guys met and where kind of in your sex work career you were and how he dealt with that? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's. Yeah. So that that will be its own book chapter <laughs> or book on its own, you know, but it's been a bumpy ride. But um, when I first started at the brothel, I was single. And like I said, that was, um, I guess, about four years ago, no, almost five years ago. And he was my ex. But at the time I was single. And so we I was there about six months or so. And we got back together. And um, he had known, obviously, that I was a cam girl and he had been with me previously. And he'd also had Um, his own involvement working in the adult industry, not as a performer, but on the other side of it. And Mm -hmm. so, um, so he was very understanding and he never had a problem with me being a sex worker, but I also wasn't doing full service when we were together. So when I got back together with him, I did say, look, this is what I'm doing now. And um, of course he knew what I was studying in school. And so he was really proud of me and he thought it was a really daring project and, you know, an interesting way to do it. And so although he, we are monogamous outside of work, he didn't like you know, me actually having sex with other people, but he was very supportive of the project and knew that there would be an end point. Now Mm -hmm. we separated about a year ago. And so then I started, uh, I went back to it and started doing some of that escorting and whatnot. And now we're back together. (laughs) together. So it's kind of, and that's why now I've decided, 
you know what, I'm done with the escorting. I'm done with the brothel. Until you're 50, right? <laughs> then you'll probably go back to it. Until I'm 50. Yeah. yeah. And then suddenly I'm going to be this super hot 50-year-old. Yes. But the reason I stopped really, it really wasn't for him. It was, again, I, I realized I don't. I don't like, I love brothel work. And if I go back and do it, it'll be in the brothels for sure. And I know, again, he, he might not like me being with other people, but he will be supportive. But um, yeah, it's never easy when you're in a monogamous marriage and one person's a sex worker. And honestly, I don't know how people do it forever. I've known some very happy couples that one or both were sex workers um, for me. And I think he deals with it better than I do. Like he's okay with it. I'm not as okay with it, which is why I'm going to continue doing cam and fetish and everything else, but only, um, you know, only have sex with him. And that's the story there. (laughs) As you mentioned, you know, monogamy, non-monogamy in your interviews with, uh, with these women who were relationship, were those relationships uh, more often monogamous outside of the sex work or do they tend to be openly non-monogamous in general? I saw both. I saw quite a few couples that were swingers where I'm, I'm thinking of a, two different women in particular that were both in their 50s when I interviewed them. And um, they had actually both come to sex work later in life because of their high sex drives and figured, hey, why not have a lot of fun and make a lot of money? Mm. And they were both married and swingers. And so th- I saw that arrangement. But I think actually what I saw more often than that was women like me where we would say, okay, I'm monogamous with the exception of, of work. You know, work is different. Work doesn't count. But outside of their they were in relationships uh, and were just with that person. Fascinating stuff. So this is not yet published data, right? You are finished collecting the data, but hasn't been published yet. What and when can we expect to see some of this in print? So I have two different book chapters that one is, I think, almost done going through edits. It's been over a year. And then another one, which I feel like the editors just fell off the face of the earth. I don't know where they are, (laughs) but hopefully those should be definitely within the next six months to a year. But as far as my data, you know, being written up in different publications, probably not for another eight to 12 months. I am writing up the dissertation right now, um, working on getting it to a place where I can defend it. And then during that process, sending out manuscripts. But unfortunately, sometimes you know, you'll send out a manuscript and it won't be published until well over a year it, later. It takes, it so takes that's a while. sort of where I am right now. Are you planning on on writing it up as a book or as uh, journal articles? Um, first journal articles, um, a couple journal articles. And then um, definitely I want to turn it into a book, even though I don't want to go into academia necessarily anymore. I do. I do want to write it up and, and get the research and the findings out there because I think it is important to have more sex work research done mm particularly by sex workers. And and we don't have enough of that. Absolutely. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Christina Pereira, thank you for being on the Science of Sex podcast. Well, thank you for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Man, that was a total bore, Dr. Jana. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, don't ever find anyone else to come on the podcast, okay? All right. I can't the, take this all level right. of boredom. Well, it's a good thing we take two-week intervals in between episodes <laughs> because we need to take a break from all that, right, Dr. Jana? That was fascinating, yeah. Joe. Yeah, no. no. Seriously. I'm, gl- I'm glad we found her. And it's one of those things where I kind of joke with other people that, you know, the internet could be such a negative space. But the fact that you're able to connect people. We, we found her because she, she friended us on, you know, 
Twitter, mm-hmm. and now she's on the show teaching us about how her sex, sex work, work research. Yeah. And I mean, the world's a great place. I mean, I hate to sound like <laughs> Oprah and be like, you know, everything is like rainbows and unicorns, but it's a great place that we're able to communicate with people and learn about other people's lives so easily now. So, and we're just gonna stick to these positives. I'm not gonna mention any trolls and anything like no. that. No, what no. trolls? No. Exactly. Nothing. Exactly. All right, Dr. John. I'll see you in a couple weeks. <laughs> Bye, Joe. Bye. To connect with Dr. Jana and Joe, go to the Science of Sex Podcast. Or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. And follow us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast.